Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello, thanks for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, on the line with me today, as ever, Michael Cox, but also, excitingly, the returning hero, Tom Warville. Tom picked up a somewhat gruesome injury a few weeks ago, which saw him ruled out of the last few pods, but we're delighted to have you back, our analytics guru. Tom, how are you doing? Great to have you back on the pod. Hey Ali, yeah, doing really well, thanks. Um, I think this is the fastest recovery in history of someone back to their profession after a broken ankle. Um, but no, doing well, really happy to be back on the pod and uh, doing something more than watching uh, Muck Mafia on Netflix. <laughs> I think a lot of listeners have been murmuring, wondering how a broken ankle would affect your voice box and, and your brain. But I mean, just clear that up for us. You have presumably uh, for a few weeks been on a, a serious cocktail of, of pain-killing drugs. Yeah, I won't um, read out my prescription to the public, but um, yeah, I was definitely uh, bed-bound for a short while. Uh, I had to have surgery on the ankle and um, all sorts of um, NHS-sponsored, um, usually Class A-level drugs. So um, yeah, it's been a, a wild couple of weeks, but uh, I'm now back to, uh, uh, well, I can function and, and, and form a proper sentence. That means I'm good enough to do the pod again. Well, looking at this week's podcast topic, I am wondering if there's been any change to your personality after some of these uh, strong prescription drugs that you've been, uh, drugs that you've been taking, because you're coming back in with a bang. Uh, Michael, why don't you explain to the listener what we are discussing today and what we've got in our sights, really? Well, we're talking quite broadly about statistics in football to, to welcome Tom back, but more specifically, we're talking about stats that we don't like, you know, the usage of stats that we think is misleading or sometimes inaccurate or sometimes just not that useful because I think it's been a good thing that the media have started to use statistics about football more more increasingly in recent years but it's not always the right kind of tone we think so uh, yeah we're going to uh, try and put that straight. Well joined by two people who know what they're talking about in this regard just before we get into things Coxie um, I hope you're well and I apologize for not asking you that previously what have you been up to this week writing wise on the athletic site? Very well thank you yeah I was writing about Arsenal the weekend and their performance against Manchester City and how basically they don't create many chances which is a surprising thing for a side seemingly based around technical quality and uh, yeah this week obviously moving on and looking at the Champions League which is a uh, Back, very busy couple of weeks for the uh, Champions League, back-to-back fixtures. So, uh, yeah, concentrating on that now. Tom is also back and working hard on site, writing articles, contributing to other writers' articles as well. A busy man, as ever, on the data analysis side of things. If you're not a subscriber of The Athletic and you'd like to give it a go, then now is a very good time to do so. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. Currently, if you head to that 
web address, you'll get an amazing offer of an annual subscription at just one pound a month. So do give that a go if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic. And just a reminder that although all of The Athletic's podcasts are free on all podcast platforms, they are available advert-free as well on The Athletic site and app for subscribers. So if you're looking for this pod without the ads, do sign up to The Athletic. Do head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. All podcasts ad-free on site. Okay, let's get into this week's topic. Um, I'm going to more or less give you guys a long leash here because really this is me allowing you guys to have a bit of a moan uh, to, to a certain extent. We're going to talk about the use of stats in the mainstream footballing media and how we think it could be improved on. I'm looking for you guys as well as to complain about things to also explain why and potentially offer some alternatives as well as to how we can improve the general discourse around football using the stats and data that we have at our disposal. As you've mentioned, Michael, some of these are bad stats because they're used without full context. That's the problem with many of them. Some of them are just nonsense. And some of them are so widely accepted that some of what you're about to say might actually be quite controversial. So yeah, quite a bit of this will basically be a a comment on how stats are used in the mainstream media, not having a go at the stat itself or the gathering of stats, but rather its interpretation and its use in football analysis. Michael will start by taking a look at some of these sort of individual match stats which get widely used. What winds you up most in this category? I'm looking forward to this pod. It's like Room 101 just for stats, isn't it? It's very exciting. <laughs> get it off your chest. <laughs> so one I saw recently that I found frustrating was uh, I was watching Leicester's 3-0 defeat to West Ham the weekend before last, I think. And obviously Leicester was struggling in that game. Jamie Vardy uh, was not having his best game. And the stat came up saying that he'd had the fewest touches in the game. And the commentators used that um, as uh, evidence that, you know, Leicester weren't playing well, Vardy wasn't playing well, which I kind of get. But you only had to go one game back to the performance against Manchester City, where Leicester won 5-2. And in that game, Vardy also had the fewest touches and he ended up with a hat-trick. Now, two goals in that hat-trick were from the penalty spot. So he wasn't necessarily having his best ever game in open play. But I think sometimes we need to accept that there are different players who are always going to have a you know, a different number of touches. And Vardy, I'd say, is the ultimate example of a player who generally just lingers on the shoulder of the last defender, isn't going to be too involved in build-up play and really focuses his energy on going in behind and scoring goals. And, you know, I think there's various quotes from Vardy and Rogers explaining that, you know, his uh, rejuvenation almost under the current manager is partly because Rogers told him to just channel his efforts on doing what he does best. And therefore, I don't think it makes sense to pick out his number of touches and say that's why he's not playing well. I'd happily have Vardy having 10 touches in the game if three or four of them are are in behind the defence uh, on the end of a through ball. That's just his game. I mean, I, I dare say that there are quite a high percentage of matches that Jamie Vardy plays in where he has the fewest touches on the pitch. That's I mean, it's it's. It's almost a sort of, it almost sums up his role and his profile as a striker pretty well there. I I suppose also uh, on this, what you're really saying is, uh, again, if you're using a stat, especially picking out one stat uh, and using that as some sort of proxy for performance, good or bad, you need to be consistent with with how you're using it, basically. You can't just take one stat from one game in isolation, not look back at all uh, at any 
you know, had any previous history of that player and that stat before making your mind up. Yeah, definitely. And there's other examples to use here. I mean, one I see sometimes is that if a side hasn't played well and they've played two forwards, people look at the number of passes they've played to each other and it might only be one or two and they use that as evidence that those two players don't play well together. Well, I mean, the best striking combination or best forward combination so far in the Premier League this season, I think we can all agree, is Harry Kane setting up Son Heung-min. That's... Uh, contributed to six goals for Spurs so far this season. But you look at that 6-1 victory over Manchester United, where obviously Spurs uh, were brilliant going forward. Kane only passed to Son twice. Uh, One of those was the assist. Um, I think there was another kind of fairly unimportant ball midway through the second half. But yeah, I mean, that was that was the extent of their combination play. Some of these things in terms of attacking, they only happen once or twice per game, if that. Um, And I don't think you can really just point to a lack of involvement and say things aren't working that's you know that's just what attacking players like sometimes Tom Warville you want to launch what can only be described as an assault on the very concept (laughs) and use of assists tell me why I think I feel like I'm already on the back foot um (laughs) so the the assist stat is obviously one that has been an ever-present and and has been collected for for years going back to I think when the Premier League started in in 92-93 I'm gonna explain what an assist is for those that don't know but essentially it's the the final pass played to the scorer um, before they they go through and um, shoot and score and I think that to some extent assists aren't a great measure of creativity they're just they're just a good measure of passing and actually have little to do with actual creation of chances or creation of, of space or or all those other things that kind of matter on a football pitch that help you score a goal and there was a great example this Monday night actually um, when Wolves beat uh, Leeds 1-0 and uh, I think Max Kilman passed to Raul Jimenez and it was a fairly like basic pass it was nothing spectacular and Jimenez kind of like picked the ball up ran out wide cut centrally, shot back, attempted a shot on goal, which wasn't you know overly spectacular, and it was headed into his own net by Calvin Phillips. Now, the shot was on target anyway, so it goes down as a goal for Jimenez, and Max Kilman gets the assist. And obviously, over the course of a season, like maybe there's only a few of these, and they don't show like the actual underlying quality of how good a, a creative player is at creating chances. But I just feel that the assist stat isn't the best stat to kind of measure creativity, and there are various flaws, such as that one, which, which mean that there are definitely others that um, that do a far better job. Two follow-up questions to you here. Uh, firstly, you're going to give me some alternatives, some some ways that you would prefer we used statistics to, I suppose, measure or analyse creative players or at least rank creative players, which I suppose is a lot of what statistics is used for. But first and foremost, just with the assist and how it is how it's decided. Would you like to see a move towards what they do in basketball? Um, it, I think it's an interesting comparison. In basketball, they still use the word assist and to all intents and purposes, it is similar to an assist in football. But actually, it's almost subjective. There is some judgment involved in deciding what is an assist in basketball. Uh, and for an, to use that example of Kilman to Jimenez, that would not be given as an assist to Kilman because his pass to Jimenez almost didn't directly set up Jimenez to score. There was so much that had to happen after that for Jimenez to actually have even a goal-scoring chance, let alone actually score. So do you think there's any uh, any reason why we should maybe tweak 
what we mean when we say assist. I think that there are, there's one kind of main reason why we don't really touch the assist definition. It's not really mess with, and it's probably better to find new and, uh, and better stats to, to measure. And that's just because being able to compare historically across all the games in all previous seasons is such a, a powerful thing to do. Um, and I think that there are very few sports where you can actually go back and compare um definitely assist because assist is kind of the first fancy stat I'd say that we do we have after goals and also number of shots maybe um so I think there that's probably the reason why they don't or the assist kind of like definition isn't tweaked now I know that Opta and, and others do collect and tag kind of an assist whether it is intentional or not which again I think is a useful thing to have but also if you have a person who's collecting the game deciding if a pass is intentional or not you're not actually in the mind of that that player you actually don't um, know whether they intended for the recipient to score or not so there's obviously a layer of subjectivity added onto this additional qualifier or tag which is in in and of itself um, subjective as well so I think in terms of uh, yeah it wouldn't change the definition but I think there are a couple of things that you know people can use instead which are more reflective of creativity and I think that a few are pretty basic so I mean just looking at the number of chances created I think is is arguably better than assist at times because there's not this outcome bias that the shot has to go in and be scored and there are certain players like I think Mohamed Salah's um, currently averaging three chances created a game uh, and of those 2.6 of them are in open play and that's good enough for seventh in the Premier League this year and he doesn't have any assists so I think straight away like that's that's one that probably isn't a you know wholly groundbreaking use chance created not assists but I think that's one good example and then the next is the kind of the quality of the chances created from those uh, from those passes so we can look at kind of the xg at the end of a, a chance that's created and give that to the player who um, who provided the the chance so Harry Kane this season is averaging kind of 0.59 xg from his passes which is the highest in the Premier League and and obviously some of those have been really nice balls from deep to to Son after him it's Hamas uh, Rodriguez at Everton 0.44 and then the next three are kind of quite interesting you've got Ryan Fredericks at West Ham which I'm gonna kind of spin round my uh, small sample size flag and say that's maybe a reason for, for that but he's joint with Alan St. Maximan and, and Jack Grealish who traditionally are probably players who are thought of as quite flashy and maybe don't have the the finishing product and the actual creative output but in the small sample of games this season they look like they are um, walking the walk and talking the talk. Interesting. Uh, Michael you're not as fussed about the debate surrounding assists as as Tom what would you say to Mr Warville who really does want to yeah take on assists <laughs> no I completely understand what he's saying um, if you're trying to measure an actual player's level of creativity and maybe how that will be replicated uh, in the future I just think it's one of those things where I quite like the stat as a kind of you know, in simple terms saying that happened, you know, if a player has assisted a goal in the last five games, I think that is interesting. It's not necessarily saying that he will continue to do that or that he is the best creator in the league. It's just, to me, it's not that different from saying who scored the goals. It's just uh, a kind of factual representation of, of that player playing the final pass, even if that pass, like the Kilman one, wasn't necessarily particularly incisive. But I agree with the general thrust of his argument. And I mean, when I was first introduced to the concept of uh, expected goals uh, and expected assists. The concept of ex expected assists kind of made almost more sense to me than the concept of expected goals because it's like, you, you know, you're not responsible for what the striker does with the pass once you tee it up to him. 
you know that's your job done you can take the measurement from there so no i completely understand with uh, what tom is saying tom how much should we push for stats in this sense for example chances created or expected assists to be split up into open play versus set pieces just fr from my own work and my own research and various podcasts and whatnot that i do you, you sometimes do get a little bit caught out when you see especially early on in the season with such a small sample size you can sometimes see a player with just a a crazy number in terms of of chances created or key passes or expected assists and not to belittle chances created from set pieces but there's got to be a conversation here about maybe splitting those up so that we're giving a fuller picture of which players can do it in the general aspect of the game during open play and which players are, are just delivering the quality from a dead ball situation yeah i definitely agree with that and i've been caught out myself before as well i remember doing some work after um kind of on the games after lockdown last season and looking at the table of kind of chance creators and being like oh wow conor hurahan is is killing it and he was he was around like three or four chances to create a game and then you put on the the filter to drop out set pieces and he drops right down to mid table so there's been a couple of times where that um has caught me out but yeah i do i do think that splitting them out makes sense because creating an open play is so much more difficult than creating from a set piece i feel from a set piece you are static you're aiming for an area there's only so much that that you can control and a lot of the times you can practice movements and you can have um you know playbooks and things like this that teams will have for, for set pieces and it's very it's so much more dynamic in open play it's so much harder to control the runs of your teammates and things like that and i think that's why creators like you know kevin de bruyne and and, and david Silva when he's in the league um the, the passes that harry kane is making this season they are so much more impressive when you you look at the fact that in open play players if they're creating more than a couple of chances in open play on average they are you know elite or at least very very good so yeah i think that's a a good argument to make for sure. Michael, I'm going to come to you now on quite a controversial topic of discussion, one that I've seen uh, on social media. Generally, it is brought up by those who are more on the side of the data and analysts and who think more deeply about numbers and their presentation than most. So I'm going to ask where you stand on the debate about including penalties in total goals, by which I mean, let's say, for example, we are giving out the Premier League Golden Boot Award. Should there be a conversation about whether to remove penalties from the discussion, given that they are not quite a free goal, but in data terms, what is it, 0.76 of a free goal? Yeah, I mean, for me, it goes back to what I said previously. It depends what you're trying to measure. For the Golden Boot, no, a goal's a goal. The, the goal counted as a goal, and I think whoever sticks it in the net should get that goal for those purposes. You could maybe have penalties as a tiebreaker if there's two tied on you know, the, the right number to win the Golden Boot. It's a completely separate argument, of course, if you're looking at trying to compare players or if you're trying to talk about whether a player's good value for money if he's been signed or whatever, then I think you have to consider it basically a, a completely separate skill. But no, I mean, for me, the Golden Boot is not meant to reward the best striker in the Premier League. It's, it's meant to record the, the guy who scored the most goals and whether they're penalties or whether they're penalty rebounds or whether they're two yards happens. For me, I think for, for those purposes, they should uh, count equally. Tom, I can imagine you've got a certain level of disdain set aside for penalties being <laughs> scored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for example, I, I, just to give some context to the listener before you pick up here, Vardy has five goals this season, four of them from the penalty spot. I mean, this guy was 
golden boot winner in the Premier League last season and people will see five goals in four games and think he's at it again. He's as good as ever, but potentially those penalties might be um, might be obstructing the truth that maybe he is a little less effective in open play, which of course is the, the main part of the game. I definitely feel that penalties do obscure goal scoring tallies and, and maybe get in the way of a player's kind of true reflection to his abilities to, to score. I mean, when Bruno Fernandes joined Man United, I think that a lot of his performances and his output were skewed by the fact that he was scoring penalties. And don't get me wrong, he scored, I think, he scored 10 out of 11 opportunities in the Premier League, which is a fantastic number. He's great at scoring penalties. And United have a kind of freak record where since Solskjaer's taken over, they've won 36 penalties in all competitions. And that's far higher than Man City on 24 uh, and Chelsea on 21. But I just think that, yeah, they are the best repeatable chance you will get in a football match. And I think, again, I kind of agree with Coxie, like we shouldn't have... We shouldn't change the award. Like, I don't think you can change the award because, again, comparing against players historically and, and all of that kind of stuff that you do so often with statistics, you can't do if you change the definition or you change the stat. I think you either you need to create a new award if you're going to do that and essentially just give it to, to players who, you know, maybe only give it to them if they win and take the penalty instead of just taking it. But yeah, I do, I do think that, I mean... It's one of the first things that I, I did when getting into kind of more analytics-based stuff around football was just looking at like, look at the players which score a higher number of non-penalty goals per 90 minutes because those are usually players who are getting, repeatedly getting good chances and are useful in open play um, instead of kind of the penalty merchants who can pad their stats, sometimes a bit like Vardy. But I do think that, again, you have some players like Chiro Mobley last season who I think contributed 45 goals in total, 36 goals, 9 assists. And of those 36 goals, 14 were penalties. So that's an outrageously high total of penalties, but also a pretty good record in open play as well. Well, the two top scorers in the Premier League as we record, Heung-Min Son and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, both have seven goals and no penalties. And long may that continue. Uh, Tom, next in the crosshairs is pass completion percentage. I noticed that last season in the Premier League, six of the top 10 players in terms of pass completion percentage played for Manchester City. You're not happy with the way that this stat is used. Yeah, absolutely seething. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of with a lot of what happens with pass completion is, like you say there with City, it's so dominated by the effects and the style of the team that you're playing on. Um, and given that, you know, passes are the most common event we have in football, they happen so much more than, than shots and goals and, and um, they are most of what the game you're watching to then boil that down to just such a simple stat such as completion percentage really removes a lot of the context of what goes into those passes and I think that to replace like pass completion I think there are just so many more interesting angles to, to look at in terms of proportion that are forward how many are progressive and move the teams through the lines how many are retained instead of completed as well is something that I feel like I bang a drum on a little bit just because pass completion rate in and of itself measures did your pass meet the feet of a fellow teammate? But there are certain passes such as ones that are down the line or ones which are kind of switched that maybe don't hit your teammate and are headed out for a throw-in or headed in open play and then picked up again that they sometimes can get you really high up the field and they're really valuable that way. Um, but it will go down as an incomplete pass, which, yes, it's an incomplete pass, but it doesn't actually tell you everything about 
what happened in that moment. Okay, that's interesting. What about tackles won or tackle win percentage? Uh, again, steam coming out your ears here about the way we use this specific stat in football discourse. Yeah, I've had to remedicate myself between this point and the previous one. <laughs> yeah, ta tackle win percentage is one you see kind of like knocking around everywhere. And it's, again, a little bit of a bugbear because the numbers don't match the eye test in this situation. It's because the the kind of formula or the way this is calculated is the proportion of tackles that you win over the total number of tackles you make. But the definition of a tackle itself is um, any time that you get a foot on the ball and essentially attempt to tackle. A tackle one is just where your team regains possession. And it doesn't take into account times when you commit a foul or times where you kind of go for a challenge and get shrugged off. And I think there's a, a kind of better stats, which I've kind of deemed the true tackle win rate, which incorporates all of these things and gives you a much better representation of players who actually try and put a foot in and how good they are at cleanly winning the ball back. So if you look at tackle win percentage um, for all players in the Premier League last year, I think Aaron Wan-Bissaka, 6th, um, 106th overall. But if you look at the true tackle win rate, which again adjusts for fouls and lost challenges, he sits in third in the league at 78% essentially. So just over three out of four tackles he's, he's going to win cleanly. And I think that that's a far better means of kind of measuring a player's ability in a in a one-on-one -on -one duel and it also brings out players that I didn't quite realize were quite as good in, as tackling as they are so I think Tom Kearney in the championship last year was again a, a really kind of clean tackler uh, and someone who if you you're ever watching he's he doesn't really harry his opponents quite well but he times sticking a leg in really nicely and then the top two for true tackle win rate in the Premier League between last season and this season are John Stones, interestingly, uh, and Yerry Mina as well. So Mina is obviously one who who can use his size and strength in a way where he's not committing a ton of fouls. And Stones, again, was one maybe like Kearney who doesn't have the, the physical tools, but evidently his timing of when to kind of dive in and, and push to win the ball back uh, is pretty good. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, next up, we're going to move away slightly from what I guess I would call in-play stats or actual footballing actions and on to a couple of other poor uses of stats in football media. Michael, talk to me about manager win percentage because this one gets trotted out every time there's a managerial vacancy and various managers are said to have applied for the job and people are analysing who would be the best option. What's their win percentage? I hear you cry. It doesn't matter. I hear you say. Yeah. Uh, hello to Tim Sherwood, if he's listening at this point. Uh, I know he's a big fan of this one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my specific bugbear with this really is kind of historical comparisons, particularly with big clubs, because I just don't think it makes sense anymore. I think that the level of inequality within football has increased so much compared to, you know, even 20, 25 years ago that the standards have been raised, expectations have been raised, and you can have managers in the current era who I think everyone would agree underperform and their stats are much better than those from 25 30 years ago who did a very good job so to give an example here George Graham at Arsenal obviously won two titles the FA Cup the League Cup twice the Cup Winners Cup his entire reign at Arsenal produced a 49% 
win rate. Unai Emery's was 55%. I don't think anyone would argue that Emery's reign was a success and certainly not better than George Graham's. To move that forward a little bit, Arteta is currently on 62.5%. Now, I'm not saying Arteta is doing a bad job and obviously this is a small sample size, but it seems crazy that he's on 62.5% because it feels like Arsenal haven't won that many games. But that's just the expectation now for big clubs. I mean, anything really close to as low as 55% that Emery got I think is pretty much a failure if you're a big club. So, yeah, it just doesn't work historically. I mean, Manchester United, it's it's not quite as uh, stark as that comparison. But uh, Jose Mourinho's win rate at Manchester United was 58%, which is only slightly less than Sir Alex Ferguson's, which was 60%. And again, I think the general perceptions of their performance as manager would uh, would differ quite significantly. So I basically just don't think it works as a historical comparison anymore. I'd agree with Cox and to, to put the kind of very technical and rigorous analytical hat on. I think that there probably are much better measures where you're adjusting for the quality of opposition faced or like the manner in which teams are winning games. And I know that kind of 21st Club and, and other companies have kind of looked to evaluate managers and see if they are winning games by a single goal or blowing teams out of the water by, by three or four. And there are just so many other like measures of how good a manager is that, that comes should come to the table ahead of just, you know, do they have they won games previously? We did a myself and Sam Lee did a piece previously around Pep will have to be replaced at some point. Who are the candidates? Uh, and we did a kind of very professional manager search uh, and looked at do the managers on average kind of increase the quality of the players that they have? What's the age profile of the squad? Uh, how many players do they use in a given season? I think there's a lot of, you know, more granular things which are, you know, understandable and, and also accessible, which tell you far more about a given manager than just has he won a, a high number of games in the past. That's got to be it as well, doesn't it? I, I know Michael was talking about the managers at the very top of the game now and how inflated their win percentages have been. But all across football and certainly in the EFL where I spend a, a, a lot of my time uh, and attention, you've got, you, you can you can debunk the myth of, of manager win percentage pretty simply. I always use the example of Nigel Clough and Burton Albion. You, you have to take expectation into context. In fact, you just have to add layers of context to basically everything that we're talking about today if you want to do it properly. I mean, Burton Albion's should never have been in the championship in the first place. And budget-wise, they were as big a minnow as you could possibly want in, in at any level, probably, in football. And they survived the first season in the championship. Now, they only won 13 of their 46 league games. So if you were to boil it down to win percentage, Nigel Clough only won 28% of his matches that season. And without any context, it's not hugely impressive, but they survived. That was such an unbelievable achievement. And therefore, if five years down the line, Nigel Clough applies for a job and someone whips out his manager win percentage, which is going to be fairly low on account of where he took that Burton Albion side, then I think that's pretty unfair and, and, is, and is doing a lot to miss uh, an important part of the analysis of managers. So that's certainly one that I would agree with you guys about. Uh, Michael, you've got now in your sights uh, a few stats. I mean, really, they're just facts. I don't know necessarily what the semantic <laughs> difference between a fact or a stat is, but essentially what I would characterize as facts presented as analysis. This really gets you going. Yeah, so one that I don't really understand is, for example, there's one at the moment, to go back to Son, who obviously is having a great season, 
Uh, there's one going around that he has scored with each of his last seven shots on target in the Premier League. Now, if he'd scored with each of his last seven shots, that would be great. But each of his last seven shots on target, I feel like I want more information. <laughs> I want to know how many shots he's had and how many have gone astray. And I did look it up. And actually, in this case, his stats aren't particularly bad. He's he's had two shots in that run that haven't been on target. And obviously, they haven't gone in. But I mean, it, it just strikes me as a slightly... Not necessarily misleading, but almost an incomplete stat. I mean, what if a player has 50 shots, 43 of those are off target, but seven of them go in the net? You could then present that stat in the same way. And obviously that would be a a much less impressive situation than what Son has achieved. So, yeah, that's just one of those where I don't really like it because I'm not quite sure what it's telling me. What if I said to you an entirely made up example that I'm sure is not true, that Tottenham, for example, have never lost when Son has scored? You like that? No, that's another one I've got an issue with, uh, as as you might have suspected. Yeah, again, it's just, I mean, this used to be presented as kind of like a lucky charm thing, like rather than an evidence of actual, of actually a player's quality. I'm just not convinced that a player has any say over whether, over the significance of their goal, essentially. I mean, you look at the the most Premier League games a player has scored in without losing. Number one is James Milner on 54, which I suspect is partly due to the fact that he, uh, has played for a couple of very successful sides. Also on that list is Darius Vassell in 46, Daly Alley on 42, and fourth place, and this is the one I find maybe most intriguing and most telling, is Solomon Kalou on 32. Now, I have a, I've always, I, before I even saw this, that I had a feeling that what Solomon Kalou did at Chelsea was he often came on when Chelsea were 3 0 up and scored a couple of goals. Now, he's going to figure highly in a stat like this, but does that make him a good player? Is he, I mean, it almost strikes me that it could be the reverse, that, you know, players who only score in goals that their side wins are sometimes almost like flaky players, you know, almost flat track bullies. They just do it when the side overall is playing well. So again, if you want to use it as, yeah, this is a lucky charm thing, fine, but I'm not sure it's really a measure of a player's quality. It's a bit like garbage time in basketball. Basically, if the if the, if there's a huge discrepancy in score and the match is coming to an end without much riding on it, often the replacement players who don't get a, a huge amount of game time will come on and just spend the last few minutes just desperately trying to score as many points as they can so that their average totals are boosted so that their average totals look more impressive and therefore they can you know potentially get a bigger contract down the line based on on what they've done just in the last few minutes of games without a lot of defending going on um okay last one to you michael on this note what about right when i'm previewing a game ahead of the weekend and i say to you i tell you what coxie wolves don't like playing at bramall lane in fact they haven't won in their last 12 visits to Bramall Lane, stretching back all the way to 1893. You like that one? (laughs) I kind of see the point of it when it's from a supporter's point of view. I mean, there was a stat ages ago that Newcastle used to never win when they come to London. And I remember thinking, yeah, I I can imagine that does matter to all the Geordies who have to make a, you know, eight hour round trip up and down the country. But yeah, I mean, what I'm looking from from statistics, and I'm sure Tom is, is the same to a certain extent, is something that... A, has meaning and and B, might be applicable to the kind of upcoming game. And I think a lot of those stats miss the point, especially when you're going back such long periods that the managers are different, the players are different. It just doesn't really have any relevance. And, you know, it's not just with stats like that, but I mean, I saw, I think it was maybe the second or third game of the season, I saw a statistic that uh, Manchester United hadn't won their second game of the season for the last... (laughs) 
five years. And again, I just, I couldn't really see how that pattern would be something that is uh, repeatable or significant or really of interest to anyone. So yeah, they're the kind of stats that uh, I don't particularly like. I feel like this is kind of neatly drawing the line of the sand between like stats, which are just stats for you know they're interesting nuggets quote unquote but there's nothing actually concrete there and then the the ones that kind of through you know we deem it analytics but essentially it's just like more reliable information and stuff that has some sort of predictive power and is actually going to tell you something about the future i definitely like coxie kind of seem to eye roll when i hear the uh they've not won here in the last 12 meetings stretching back to you know before the war again interesting stat but um not remotely predictive or reflective of current circumstances but then again we're never going to see those kind of things disappear because they are um, interesting to a large segment of, of fans. I just like the idea and I, and I know it's quite flippant and I know that deep down people don't really think it has a huge predictive quality on the game that's about to come but I do love always the idea of like the big summer signing that comes in for from, for 40 million quid from from the continent let's say Donny van der Beek for example using that Manchester United second game of the season stat I just love the idea of him on the bus to Brighton for their second game this season just with the burden of history really weighing heavy on his shoulders as someone fills him in on, on just how poor United's record is and that arbitrary number of game uh, in the season uh, okay we've got a couple more to sink our teeth into Tom Warville especially has something to say about what I would call summary stats Tom and we've kind of touched on this sort of thing but just to give an idea to the listener about what we're talking about here's one I've plucked out what if I said to you that on the weekend uh, Musa Sissoko in the first half against West Ham had a 93% pass accuracy made three ball recoveries three tackles won, one chance created one interception and a partridge in a pear tree. What do you think about those ones? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I know where you've plucked that from. And the format of those kind of, you know, stat summaries, whatever you want to call them, is always the same. It's kind of like player versus opposition, four stats, two end summary words, you know, four emojis that make some sort of sense, and a picture that's been nicked from Getty. <laughs> Highly shareable, I would say. Very shareable, bite-sized hashtag content. But for me, Ali, I just always find that they're so lacking in in context and like it attempts to boil the game down and tell you something about you know a player's performance and i i do get it's really hard to do that on certain platforms but some of them it's just the the choice of the stats is always a bit rogue um i always find with with center backs when they're highlighted it'll be like eight clearances and it's like well in certain games you'd really like a player to be clearing the ball a lot and then in others you're absolutely baffled if Joel Matip's putting his foot through the ball instead of laying a simple pass sideways. And then there are others just kind of like <clears throat> the mention of the number of shots on target without the mention of the number of shots. Um, it could be that if we were to do one of these with Pablo Fornals at the weekend, it would be like, you know, one touch in the box, um, you know, zero shots off target, skull and crossbones emoji face. <laughs> and I just think that like whoever is kind of writing these is going in at the start with a narrative and mm. then you just kind of backfit all of the stats to that narrative and that's that, it know, isn't you... it there's let's say there's 10 to 15 sort of semi-recognizable top line stats and you can probably select five of them to make any point that you want good or bad even if it's the same player that you're talking about and the same performance 
Yeah, I think you can get away with the same stats. It just depends on the the emoji you choose. Completely dictates whether they is positive or negative. But yeah, I think like I don't know. We definitely the stuff that we do on the site. Uh, you definitely see. There's always more of that context kind of added in. I think that that is something where we're starting to see more of elsewhere in, in the media and trying to maybe not get away from this, but just add that context. I mean, you mentioned it before, Ali, just adding context here is, is so crucial and so key to actually presenting information that is meaningful and useful and not just kind of, you know, serving some sort of narrative. Hard to share context though, isn't it? Online, very hard. Um, <laughs> right, last but not least, uh, we're going to talk about what is sometimes called the U2 statistic that is with or without you stats tom you're not a fan <laughs> of these at all <laughs> yeah um these ones that um and again we've we've mentioned basketball a couple of times in this podcast but it, uh, that i feel that basketball is kind of at the forefront of of this kind of work and it it works in basketball because you can have players there are so many more substitutions in football the scoring is so much more higher there are, you know, teams play more games. Like you get a larger sample of different lineups, and from that you can kind of draw out, okay, what's the signal in here and what's the noise, and and are there certain players who we are confident that are better, you know, for their team when they play versus when they don't. And in football, there's just you know, there's eleven players, there's three subs. You have a small number of games. It's low scoring. I just think it's so hard to be able to kind of tease out that signal, that information from this kind of way of saying, you know, Liverpool with Jordan Henderson is so much better without Jordan Henderson. And again, I think it's you will never usually see these stats presented if they're not backing the narrative. And that to me makes me think that they're only ever used when it's when it serves the point. Looking at some of the data that's on fbref.com, we can see that kind of Fabinho for Liverpool, I think that Liverpool were 0.84 goals worse off when he played um, versus when he didn't, which doesn't really pass the eye test. And I think that um, it could be that he played or he missed games against tough opposition or he's playing out of position in some games or whatever it may be. I don't think that that stat you can put much faith in it because he makes Liverpool worse. I would, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of fans who've watched Fabinho would say, "Oh, we're so much worse with him in the team." And I think the other issue as well is you have the 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 Ben Mee effect, which is how do you decide whether a player is better or worse within the team when he plays literally every single minute? And I think you know for that reason that you will always struggle with with certain centre backs and goalkeepers as well. So a word of word of caution on on those sorts of stats and. You usually seem to to back a, a narrative, and I think it's worth questioning. You know how much stock we can really put in those in those numbers. Right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, Michael, do you feel like you've got a load off your mind there? Uh, got plenty off your chest? You've had a bit of a moan. You've explained why. Uh, I think it's been quite good fun. How, how have you enjoyed this pod? Yeah, very therapeutic, and I've I've also found more things to be annoyed about that, that Tom has explained as well. So that's a that's a great. Uh, boost going forward yeah i have to admit i i didn't feel that you lacked things to be annoyed about <laughs> before we recorded but thrilled to hear that you've got uh, more you've got a, a good appetite for it uh, and tom your return to the pod uh, you were quite excited to take aim uh, at some of the poor uses of stats and data and facts 
in the uh, in the discourse of the beautiful game? Do you feel better for it? Yeah, I feel that simultaneously my blood pressure has lowered while Coxie's has raised, which overall, I guess, which means we're we're pretty much level back where we started. Mine has stayed exactly the same. Got absolutely <laughs> just just ice in my veins. Um, I'm I'm really excited, guys, because the next two weeks, the next two episodes of the Zonal Marking Podcast, we've got a little mini series that we have put together. We think it's going to be a really interesting look at a certain topic uh, using Tom Warville's data analysis expertise, using Coxie's general expertise, uh, and I will be sort of pushing the buttons. I'll be steering us through it. So I'm not going to give away exactly what it is yet, but hopefully long-time listeners of the pod will recognize that it's something a little bit a little bit different, a little mini-series, and potentially the sort of thing that we could build upon and, and take on other topics as well. So please do make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. Also make sure, especially with Tom back up and running on site, that you are subscribed to The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking at the moment you can be a subscriber for just one pound a month it's incredible value there's some amazing sports writing on there and i can say that because i'm not let anywhere near the site uh, writing wise the podcasts are also available ad free if you're a subscriber of the athletic so if you head to the app or the site you can listen to this pod and so many others ad free if you're a subscriber of The Athletic. We hope that you'll join us again this week. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast as well. Let us know what you think about the topic of discussion today. Bad stats, or reality probably is, contextless stats. Get in touch with us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Any that we've missed out, anything that really deserves to be moaned about, please let us know. And join us again next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.